You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Once you start looking at the world in terms of teams and the collaborators that had to come together to do anything, then you kind of see it everywhere. Your most recent book is basically how a team could come together to create optimal performance. How does an individual benefit from reading this book? Well, everything is about teamwork, everything in life, right? So you don't just need people who think differently, who can push each other, who can have that great friction. You also need the ability to change. So intellectual humility is this virtue. It's four things. It's being able to respect someone else's viewpoint. It's not being overconfident intellectually, so not being too sure that everything is right. It's being willing to revise your viewpoint and being able to separate your ego from your intellect. If you can do those four things, then you're kind of the ideal person to be working with. If everyone in your group has those things, then you can be almost unstoppable. I have Shane Snow on the podcast for, for the, the third time, but it's been a while since you've been on. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was over two years ago, maybe like 
When did when did Smart Cuts come out? Four years ago. Four years ago. So I remember I read it and I didn't know you then. And I contacted you right away and said, you got to come on the podcast because I thought Smart Cuts was a great book. Now your um, most recent book uh, is called Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. And it's basically how, uh, you know, how to, but I would say it's about two things and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's A, how a team could come together to create better than or, or optimal performance. Like many teams come together and are, are lesser than the individuals combined. Like, and you mentioned many examples of, you could have a team full of all-stars, but it'll be a horrible team. Whereas, you know, the all-stars are great as individuals. Um, but you, you then mentioned some teams where individually, they're not necessarily the best, but as a team, they win every, everything. And I'm not just talking about sports. I'm talking about business, uh, relationships, every industry in, in, in life. Um, and then also as an individual, how individuals can build a team around them to, to basically create optimal performance. Is this, is this roughly? I like hearing the pitch from your mouth because I've been, you know, the last few months have been just constant uh, working on book marketing, right? And the book's done. And so now I'm just talking about it with people. I like that way of framing it. That's how I benefited from the book because, um, you know, we have a, t- let's just take this podcast as an example. We have a team. Um, so I'm just thinking, I think, how do I benefit from reading this book? Or how does an individual benefit from reading this book? And and some people might not be on a, an official team, but if they start thinking in terms of this, they can improve their lives. And we'll get to that in the in the podcast, of yeah. course. Well, everything is about teamwork, everything in life, right? We Everything that you do, the things that you're using, we're all made by people. And you could consider that all part of your team. Everything you're working on is building on a, off of other people's work, or working with other people, whether they're employed by you or not, uh, we can kind of look everywhere. And well, so the analogy I like is when I started skateboarding when I was a teenager, suddenly everything looked like a skate park. Drive by in the back of my mom's van and there's an Arby's. I'm like, ooh, I could skateboard on that. Once you start looking at the world in terms of teams and and the collaborators that had to come together to do anything, then you kind of see it everywhere. Well, and it's interesting, you know, just skateboarding in general. And so, you know, we've had Tony Hawk on the podcast uh, world champion skateboarder and just going through his life story, skateboarding on the one hand is this very like punk individual activity. Like when you're on the skateboard, you're either going to fall or not. And no matter who's on your team, um, but skateboarding competitions revolved around teams. Like Mm -hmm. it still was a natural thing for people to form teams and you, and you learn from the other people on your team and so on. You learn someone made the bearings and someone coached you on how to do this trick. You saw someone else do that trick and you figure out how to do it. Yeah. It's all, everything that we work on is related and we get better because of other people. And, and in one of the last chapters, might be the last chapter, uh, uh, you kind of suggest this is not just some artificial self-help thing. This is like biologically imprinted in our brains for maybe a million years, you have what the, this last chapter is called oxytocin or one of the last chapters. Uh, is it the last That's chapter? That's the last chapter. Yeah. Uh, oxytocin, a love story where basically this neurochemical that increases our level of well being and happiness is essentially released in our bodies when we do something to increase the trust of the team around us. So we're rewarded biologically by being a good team player. Yeah, that's part of how we survived. We we had these great brains, but you know we're kind of weak compared to the saber toothed tiger. So we had to survive by working together. And our brains figured out that if you can get someone else to care about you, or if your brain could care about someone else, 
then you'd be more likely to band together, and together you could beat off this saber-toothed tiger, or you could beat the storms and the hurricanes, you could build things. And so our brains developed this ability to generate this little empathy drug, this oxytocin, which makes you feel good. And uh, it's released when someone shows you a kindness, you have a positive social experience, someone gives you a hug, but also when you learn someone's story. When you watch someone who's in danger, who's in a situation that you can relate to in some way. And uh, yeah, our brains basically develop this ability to uh, to basically cause us to want to work together, to band together, because that was useful, but it also feels really good. I thought I, you know, and I've actually so I've I've written in one of my one of my books about oxytocin. I've also had on um uh, one one neuroscientist who talked about oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, and all that stuff. But I never made the connection between oxytocin and storytelling before, which I thought was very interesting. That basically storytelling can convey, as opposed to fact telling, can convey more empathy, and which then increases the oxytocin potential. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. I, I actually, I think I ended up writing about this. It was around the time I was finishing up the last draft of the book. Yeah, I did put it in that last chapter. I actually had went to a neuroscientist's yes, lab you about this. and had them basically scan my brain chemistry while showing me kind of heartwarming videos. And the one that I wrote about is the video of this father who, you know, kind of has this shitty teenager and yeah. and you watch him trying to be a good dad and and sort of the end of the story is this big twist that makes you cry basically. And uh, and I was in this lab hooked up to this equipment watching this video trying to hide the fact that I was tearing up. You know, the scientist was like, "Aha!" pointing to this chart that shows that, you know, we're actually measuring the brain chemistry in in your brain changing and showing a having an emotional empathetic response to this guy who's not like you. I, I'm not a dad. I, uh, you know, I, I don't have a shitty teenager. I have no reason to, you know, believe that this guy's real. I know it's a fictional thing. And yet I had this emotional response where I wanted to give him a hug and, and, and actually and, measure it. And, and because of that emotional response, because of that oxytocin spike, my guess is, and you're, you're not a dad, you've never been a dad, but at some point in the future you might be. My guess is because of the high uh, spike in oxytocin, when you're actually involved in a parenting situation that seems difficult, you'll you're more likely to remember this story because it triggered this um, spike in your brain and then act accordingly because you you were able to, even though you can't relate to this guy right now, some part of your brain did relate and has now changed the wiring in your brain a little bit and that increases your ability as a, a future parent. Yeah, and also I think I just am a little bit more sympathetic to other people who are parents who I run into. You know, it's not easy and I understand that a little bit better now. Well, and I'm going to go all over the place, but, but there are concrete things here. I, I just want to, I want to, I'm going to just take a stab every time we say something concrete that I think um, is helpful, which is that basically if you're trying to get people on your side and on your team, tell them a story and just don't show them facts. <laughs> so that's one one p potential concrete thing out of this. Another concrete thing is reading is great, which you point out in the book, because then you hear more and more stories. Reading fiction is great because you hear more and more stories that you could potentially uh, be used to rewire your brain. You, you get to borrow someone else's life enough to get these oxytocin spikes and that helps you as well. And it actually, the secondary effect of that is it helps your brain train itself to be more intellectually humble. I, I, I am going to get to that. Okay. So, because intellectual humility was a big part of this. 
I meant to take the, you have a test for intellectual humility. Yeah. I meant to take it. My, I'm not gonna, this is not gonna sound <laughs> humble, but I think I do score high on something like that. But that doesn't sound humble when I say that. So you, I, I you and 95% of Americans think that you, yeah, we, well, it's like, we it's think like, that we're above average. Is well, all it's, like, it's, like the, it's like the driving statistic. Nine out of 10 people think they're above average drivers, yep. which, or let's say above median drivers. And I, I'm the one out of 10 who knows that he's a below average driver. But uh, <laughs> maybe I, in the show notes, you can post your score. Yeah, I will. That's a good idea. Um, I want to, I want to, I, I feel like this is a great extension to, to your book, uh, Smart Cuts. Uh, which was which is a great title, because because obviously it's a riff on shortcuts and and you know there's there's this whole kind of philosophy that you know life is pretty complex and uh, combined with the fact that we don't always get the best education we don't necessarily have the best educational system so so there are life hacks to kind of um, you know do increasingly complex things in a much faster way than was previously thought and and smart cuts. While not quite exactly a book about life hacking, um, it, it, it gives you kind of a framework for how to approach complicated decisions in your life, or or, or learning new skills, or being more creative. Smart cuts was is a way to kind of take shortcuts around the traditional system, and and you focus on something you called uh, you know lateral thinking to to increase innovation, productivity, and essentially you know do kind of you know hack the system a little bit. Uh, maybe describe describe lateral thinking and smart cuts a little bit because I do think it 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 leads right into dream teams, which is an excellent book, by the way. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm by, by, by the way, I just want to say about dream teams. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt before you sure. get to that. Uh, just in terms of writing style, by the way, it's like it's like um, you tell all these great stories, ranging from you know the Russia hockey team to. Uh, and assassin, you know, uh, I, and uh, political events that I thought I would have known about, but I didn't know about from Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson. Um, you talk about the Wu Tang Clan. You have study after study that from scientists and also studies that you've done, which is kind of a rare thing. You know, I hardly ever see you know writers do their own uh, scientific experience. And you have this very uh, Malcolm Gladwell style of telling the story, which is you tell part of the story. You leave us with the cliffhanger, then you get into kind of the science and research, then you get back into the story, and you're interweaving all these things to make this grander point. Anyway, I think this is a really well written book. It's it was such an enjoyable read. But now, smart cuts and lateral thinking. Uh, well, think I, I feel like does, don't sponsors usually have to pay money for that kind of endorsement? I'm just saying what I honestly <laughs> what I honestly feel. So I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, that's, that's the highest compliment. Otherwise, we would believe me. We've done this. We've canceled people on the morning of the podcast when I didn't like the book, <laughs> and I've lost friends over that. Wow. Well, appreciate it. So, um, smart cuts is about this idea that you don't make breakthroughs by playing the same game that. Everyone else is playing. Same game, meaning, you know, let's say one version of that is college. Then you start from the bottom. You rise up in the co- in the you know promotion, 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 and blah blah blah. Right. Yeah, that's one uh, very practical example of we have this system. We have this game that you have to play, where you have to climb through certain steps in order to get to where you want to go. You're not going to do that faster or do that better or make a new way to do that by playing within that framework. And in fact, you, your point in the book is, and you give a great example, your point in the book is, is if you do do that slow methodical path, you probably won't get to the top. So as an example, you give the US president's 
And you, 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 which is really interesting now with the most recent election actually yeah. proves the point that I, right, I made right in 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 one way, and we'll see about the other way. But <laughs> uh, 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 your point is that many presidents, uh, Obama, Eisenhower, you get you give a whole list of presidents. They actually had the shortest uh, runs in public service before they became president as opposed to many U.S. senators who would like to be president, but they'll never get there. Even if they have like 40 years of dedicated public service, it's it's the people who took these smart cuts who became president. And you and you give one counterexample who turned out to be one of the worst presidents in history, which is Andrew Johnson, did right. the traditional route and became this horrible president. So the interesting thing when you break down, the, say, the challenge of becoming president of the United States, you would assume based on the way the system's set up, that the way you become president is you get elected in a really small office and then you slowly win elections to bigger and better offices until you become president. Andrew Johnson is a great example of that. First and election. I'm trying he, to think of, I mean, uh, what's, an, what's another example that, uh, I'm trying to, I'm going all the way back, John F. Kennedy. Oh no, Lyndon B. Johnson, but he he got there by, because Kennedy was assassinated. Right. But John F. Kennedy was, you know, congressman, then senator, then president. He moved through that really quickly, and he started young. He also had he had this sort of war hero experience. He had this uh, you know family with this legacy. He was a Pulitzer winner. He had all these things that well. So this actually helps make the point. The point is not the kind of the uh, the thing that you see on the outside. The point is that underneath all of this stuff with the president election thing is the fundamental question of what do, what is the reason someone votes for someone for president or for a leadership position like that. It's not actually that experience. It's the the statistics show that it's divorced from the amount of experience you have. It uh, is actually people vote based on perceived leadership qualities. So therefore, the question is, if you want to become president, how do you gain the kind of perceived leadership qualities that will get people to vote for you? And is there a faster way or a better way than climbing that traditional political ladder? So Kennedy was interesting, but he had these perceived leadership qualities because he came from this family with this legacy. He was great looking. He had risen very quickly, and that momentum actually gave him this perception of, uh, you know, he's been a congressman and all these things, and he's only 40 years old. That made him seem like this great rising leader. Uh, it turns out that, yeah, you look at the stats and, and the surveys, and people will vote if they take a look at you, and they get, you know, 10 seconds of your bio, and they say, that sounds like a leader to me. So someone who's a war hero very likely to do well in an election versus someone who has been sitting there in Congress for 30, 40 years. And, uh, and but that's interesting though, because the person who's been in Congress for, for 30 or 40 years, their narrative is I'm a leader because I've been a leader in public service mm -hmm. for 30 or 40 years. A congressman is a leader of some sort, you know, they're not actually leading anything, but they can call themselves a leader. Yeah. So there's uh there's sort of two parts of being president or becoming president. One is, the problem to be solved of getting elected, and the other is the problem to be solved of being a good president. And so the case that some politicians will make is, hey, I've been in Congress for 30 years, so therefore I will be good at the job of being president. But it turns out that those 30 years in Congress do not actually correlate with people wanting to vote for you. It's not, a, it's not an argument that is works. Is that because people don't perceive you as a leader? If you look like a leader and you've been in Congress for 30 years, or you can sort of do something to convince them besides the experience argument, then maybe. And that's how people like Lyndon Johnson get elected. Um, well, he got elected vice president, right? Which is even, you know, maybe kind of uh, still making this point. But if you're, 
a businessman who is very, very famous and who on TV for the last 10 years has had this persona of, I know how to run a room, I know how to run something, you seem like a leader. People knowing very little about you will be inclined to vote for you. Well, it's very interesting because if you look at, I mean, first off, uh, governor is a better route to presidency than yep. senator because senators and congressmen actually don't really lead their states or the district, but a governor does ha is, yep. is an executive. Um, so they can make the, their narrative is I was a leader. Um, and I guess you're right. War hero. Also interesting thing about Kennedy was because of his, uh, back pain, he was taking uh, cortisone, which, um, fleshed out his face. He was very thin uh -huh. just a few years before the presidency, but then he face became very puffy and that probably just then. And that was the first, those were the first televised debates. So people saw a more leadership looking. He got, he, he, it's like he got fillers. He added some years to his, his face. He added some maturity to his face. Interesting. He didn't look like a teenager. Yeah. When he first got elected to the Senate, if you see pictures of him, he looked like he was a teenager practically. That probably did help a lot. So yeah, so there's the, if the problem to be solved is get people to think you appear like a leader, then there's lots of routes to that. So that's what Smart Cuts is about is figuring out the way to solve the problem that's not the, the assumed way. So there's, there's two things then. There's one is, What's the actual solution to the problem? So again, with with the presidency, with, with every situation, people assume, most people assume there's kind of a normal path is the best solution to the problem. So it's the congressman to senator to vice president to president or whatever. But that, so, so figuring out what the actual solution to the problem is, and in this case with the presidency, it's perceived leadership qualities. And then there's uh, how do I get, how do I construct my narrative, my story, so that I have perceived leadership qualities. So war hero, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, do a good debate on television against Nixon, who clearly had a narrative of leadership at that point, mm -hmm. but just wasn't enough to beat Kennedy in, in 60. Um, what, what, what was another area you spoke about in, in the book? Again, I read the book four years ago, so I'm just trying to remember. <laughs> yeah. So I, what I try to do is attack a different myth about success and in each chapter and use that as in uh, sort of a wedge into this idea of someone thought differently, someone applied lateral thinking or you know what I would call smart cuts to this situation. Here's another way to kind of employ lateral thinking. So the presidents, that's about hacking the ladder. One thing I would want to say is at the end of that, if you're breaking down the fundamental problem to be solved, winning the election is not the only problem you should worry about. The worst thing you could do is win the election and then be shit at the job. So that's that's something to kind of consider the long-term view of uh, of what problems you're trying to solve. And by the way, in Dream Teams, I was fascinated by your knowledge of kind of the obscure, more obscure stories of various administrations and presidents from the past. I had no idea Thomas Jefferson was such an awful president. He, he was, was like the worst president in history. He's a great example of this, actually. He was a great writer. He was a great revolutionary. He was really good at getting people you know, riled up for this shared purpose of creating this country, right? And yeah, divorcing yeah, he, ourselves. He was a leader. He got consensus around his written yeah. Declaration of Independence. Yeah. But then once he was president, he made some of the dumbest decisions. He, his reaction, his response to the British uh, basically robbing U.S. ships while they're out in international waters to kind of pay themselves back for the war. His response to that was to just make imports and exports illegal, which, you know, kind of ranks in the high up in the list of the dumbest decisions the president has ever made. He bankrupted America with this decision. Um, yeah, he he did a lot of things as president that were not smart. And I think in part because he was fairly stubborn, but also in part because we we voted for him because he was this great hero of the revolution. 
not because he was necessarily a good administrator. But other than you, I've never read that story. So I uh, I had always perceived him as a great leader. We love and, him as a statesman, but yeah, but then we And so history has ignored stuff. History has ignored like I I took history all through high school and college like history books have ignored basically this crucial factor. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's funny, um this is totally off off topic, but just if you look at the history of the presidency, um anybody who uh, you know, the president has ultimately very few constitutional powers, but anybody who gets in the way of international trade uh, ends up causing economic collapse. So like <laughs> Thomas, and I didn't know yeah. Thomas Jefferson was in that category. Certainly Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover was. We'll see if Trump's going to be with his tar current tariff war. But anyway, this is off topic. Yeah, but, uh, so other things that, that I tackled in Smart Cuts were, well, one of my favorites was uh, the story of um, basically pro-surfers. So I like surfing. I'm not good at it, but I like surfing. And so I, I took a look at what makes the difference between world champion surfer and just a good surfer. And it turns out that it's not how many years you've been practicing. There are people who have been practicing surfing as long as all the world champions that are not better at it. Um, it might have a little bit to do with the kind of practice, the kind of coaching you've gotten. But the uh, when you get to a champion surfing championship, the difference between the person who wins and the person who loses the championship is not how strong they are, not how good a shape they are, not how good a swimmer they are. It's how good they are at studying the waves. So pro surfers, world champion surfers, will show up to the beach at six in the morning and sit there and watch the water. They'll watch the waves and they'll try and, and basically figure out how the waves behave at this particular spot on today and uh, so that they can predict, they can sort of use pattern recognition to predict what sort of waves they should go for and in what spots they should be. So you still need some years of experience, though, to take advantage of, you have to know what patterns to look for. There's a, there's a threshold where you need, to, you need to be proficient enough in order to do that. But it's, uh, yeah, the, the surfers that are better at studying the waves are the surfers that are better at winning the championship. So it's kind of, you're seeing that people are solving the wrong problem. Just working out your shoulder muscles is not going to help you be the champion. At a certain point, your shoulder muscles are going to be sufficient. It's figuring out, which waves to pick is what makes a difference. And that is about a different kind of studying. So those are the kinds of things that I, I did in Smart Cuts. And it, it kind of amounts to, I mean, the thing that led to sort of the dream teams thing is recognizing that if you want to change the game, you want to play a different game, often you have to think differently. And often that different thinking is not just going to boil up inside of you from nowhere. Right, so so I want to, I want to, I want to um, talk about how, again, Dream Teams is almost like a, a form of master smart cut. But I, but I, I want to I stick to the concept of, uh, a, a little more of smart cuts because I think it's so innovative uh, and which is why I was so, so eager to talk to you and then we got to, to know each other through the years. But um, uh, how would you learn, in, in a given industry, how would you learn what your smart cuts are? So for instance... You're in the content business. You're, you, you know, you're the co-founder of a great company called Contently, which creates. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say content marketing for companies, but you basically create uh, very original, unique content for companies that they can use to uh, express their brand on in social media and other forms of media. And it's it's a it's a, a great company that, you, that you've built up. Uh, uh, so 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 you know a lot about storytelling and writing. How, for instance, would you use smart cuts to, uh, you know, 
get bigger on social media or become a better writer? Like what's, let's just pick random, random things and, and try to apply smart cuts to it. All right. Let's talk about one of the things you mentioned. You like the, the way that I did the cliffhanger endings in the stories in this new book. So, uh, I learned from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography that his process for becoming a better writer would be to take a great magazine story from The Spectator, which was like, you know, the New Yorker of his day. Take the story and then he'd take notes on it and rewrite in his own words what the story was about. Like very detailed on his own sort of piece of paper. He'd put the magazine away and he'd come back to just his notes a day later, a couple days later, and then he'd try and rewrite, recreate the original magazine story just from his notes. So sort of this game of telephone to see if he could do as good a job. And he'd compare his new story to the original magazine story, see what he did differently, see what the magazine did better. And he'd do this over and over and over again until he decided that he was a better writer than all these writers at The Spectator. So I thought that was a pretty cool process. So I, uh, what I liked about that and my insight into that is he, he's trying to figure out how to be a better writer. So he drilled into kind of the really teeny tiny details in a very systematic way of how the best of the best kind of did this thing. And that helped him to become a better writer faster than going to school for writing, basically. So he found his own sort of hack for getting better at the things that mattered. So I decided I wanted to do that with my own writing, my own storytelling style in particular, because I think that a lot of business books are pretty boring. I'm writing about topics that are are mostly sort of that are like business adjacent or pop business stuff. Well, I think I think most uh Books are not written by good writers, <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah, it's it's rare, and I think especially it, in, in nonfiction, it's tough. Um, so I wanted to be the kind of fiction or nonfiction writer who people actually wanted to read, whether or not they got anything out of my work. If it was entertaining enough to talk about anyway, then great, because there will be lessons inside. There will be things that can help you inside of it. So I thought about, well, who do I break down? Whose writing do I break down? Like Ben Franklin did so that I can get at the things that make for a great sort of captivating storytelling sort of style. And first, I, I did go to, to folks like Malcolm Gladwell, or my favorite is Gene Weingarten. He's a Washington Post feature reporter. I think the greatest story to ever appear in a newspaper is one of his. It's called The Great Zucchini. Um, you should read it. It's, it's amazing. Anyway, so I, I went to some of my heroes like that, that write nonfiction journalism, and did the same thing, broke down a spreadsheet. Here's how they structure their stories. But then the thing that really helped me is I, I'm a big you know, television fan and I in particular love uh, Alias. So I, you know, that's the show that I've come back to the most. I love J.J. Abrams, I love Alias. So I decided to start breaking down episodes of Alias in the same way. What's the way that J.J. Abrams structures you know, this story about Sidney Bristow and the CIA or whatever? And, uh, and so little things that he does is sort of a matter of habit in that show. And I think in many of his movies too, were kind of amazing cinematic storytelling that I decided, well, if I apply this across to you know nonfiction science business writing, maybe I can... Like what's one thing you learned from that? So he loves to start his episodes in en media res is what it's called. So basically... In what? En media res is Latin for kind of like in the middle of things. Okay. So he starts the episode at the most intense part halfway through the story. And then, you know, it'll be whatever. She's being tortured you know, blah, 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 there's a scary bad guy. Um, and you're like, oh my God, it's all going to fall apart. And what is even happening? And then it'll stop and it'll say three months earlier. And then it goes and you develop the story. And this is the thing that he does to prevent people from, you know, getting up to pee uh, instead of watching the the show. So uh, so you'll notice that there's some of the, the stories in the book 
that uh, that kind of start that way. So my favorite opening to a chapter, see if I get it right, the chapter about the War of 1812, um, which is where Thomas Jefferson has made this terrible uh, decision and and caused a war, basically, and and this huge sort of rift in American society. We were trying to decide whether to join the British or the, to fight them. The British oh, yeah. want to take us that over. That was a great start, by the way. And in fact, you even congratulate yourself after you <laughs> write the first sentence. I wanted to write, you say, I wanted to write that sentence. Yeah, so I think it starts, General Andrew Jackson was fresh off his latest massacre when he got the call to lead an army of pirates, American Indians, free slaves, lawyers and whores to save America from destruction. Yeah. Great. And then I say, I was really excited to write that sentence, but let's back up. So that's the J.J. Abrams move. You, you have 15 seconds of some really dramatic thing, and then it's like, okay, now we're going to find out the story. And it's like, you have to keep going after that point. I don't know. I, did I, did yeah, I get yeah. that pretty close? to? No, yeah. no, you're right. And that that's so interesting. And it's, so a couple of things I gather from that. One is, um, Again, reading was incredibly useful for developing that smart cut. Like you read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin and took this point that was relatable to your own life. And instead of spending the 10,000 hours he might have used to uh, come up with these techniques to be a better writer, you were able to just do it right away, but then use it using modern um, storytelling techniques like from cinema. Uh, it's funny because I've done something similar using some of my favorite comic books. So huh. I, I just how they begin and how they end uh, sometimes are very uh, not not like superhero comic books, but I like kind of these black and white autobiographical comic books that are very uh, uh, beautiful and, and visual and not heavy on uh, uh, poetry, but heavy on storytelling. Huh. And so so any anyway, but it's it's interesting because it reminds me of that of, of that idea. But um, I, I like that because if you know my goal, the problem I was trying to solve is be as entertaining as possible, right? And so, who's as entertaining as possible? I think you know a, a cinematic storyteller like J.J. Abrams. Why not rip off his decades of developing that and apply it across to an industry where that doesn't happen that much? And voila, much more entertaining way to you know, to tell a story about what ultimately is kind of business. Than, than I could have if I start with, all right, we're going to talk about core values and are they good or are they bad and where do we misunderstand them? Like shoot me in the head, right? Yeah, and I think so many like, you know, I don't want to just say self-help books, but just like nonfiction books start off like that, like where they don't, it's sort of like just some guy lecturing from a stage about facts and it's not, again, as you point out in Dream Team, storytelling is a much more effective way to, uh, you know, spike up the neurochemicals that are going to leave an imprint on the brain get you to care yeah and yeah. if you if you care about something and if you and if something makes you happy it's it's like you sort of said you know almost self-deprecatingly like even if they don't get value out of the book they're still going to recommend it because it was so entertaining that's another thing i like to do in writing which is to um give people multiple reasons to like something hmm. so maybe it's the story is well written maybe it's uh, something they learned, maybe it's one specific quote, uh, whatever. I try to give multiple reasons for people to to like either, even in social media, this works like for an Instagram post. Maybe it's the photo, maybe it's the the caption or whatever. So I like that. Well, again, it's it's sort of boiling down what's the thing that you're trying to accomplish, right? You're trying to get as many people as possible to enjoy this, share it, whatever it is. And you can then break whatever the you know best practice is and say, you know, people say you got to focus on one thing. You could say, no, my goal is to get as many people as possible. So I'm going to 
do something for everyone in this, and that could actually work in that case. Well, I'll give you I'll give you an example, which is which, which, of a reader of yours, which is me. I would have read this book regardless of what the topic is, regardless of all your other stories. I would have read this just for the Wu Tang Clan story, because <laughs> in my in a previous life, I did uh, in the '90s, I did all their websites. Oh, I remember you telling so, me about this. So yeah, so I was uh, I was you know really into them, and really what a fan. The, could, what did their website look like in the 90s? Uh, I mean, it was, was all it? very just basic. This 90s was a weird time for websites. Although the website design was completely different then than now. It was very heavy, almost like much more artistic than it needed to be because um, it was very heavy design and, and not necessarily user-friendly. Like There was not the kind of science of web design that there is now. But And then we also did uh, the enhanced CD. Back then there was enhanced CD, so there would be the CD with their music, but then if you put it in your computer, there'd also be games or whatever. So we would do that. We would do that for them, and uh, and we did all of Loud Records stuff, and they were they were signed by Loud Records nice. after yeah. Protect right. Your Neck. Yep. Uh, what became a hit, and I love that you you describe the genesis of that song Protect Your Neck again. I would have read this bo entire book just for that story because I love that's like my favorite song of theirs which was their first big yeah. song so uh, that yeah i mean i'm i'm a huge fan of those you know, the point that you're making is actually something that i was very thoughtful about in creating this book where similar to you with your instagram example i wanted to expose these ideas to as many people as possible so therefore i chose the stories and the characters and the genres of stories very carefully i'm not really a sports guy but there's a couple of sports stories. There's, you know, it starts with a sports story, and there's a, a story about um, little Jewish soccer kids in Argentina that's also in there. That's not as much of a sports story, but kind of interesting. But I, you'll notice the chapter headings all are in different languages. So chapter one is the only one that's in English, and chapter two is in German. Chapter three is in. By the way, I did not. I did not notice that. <laughs> so each chapter has that little Easter egg, and what that different language represents is the. I, I don't. You know, that might not be in this. Uh... It's it's not in the table of contents. It's once you, oh, my publisher I, didn't want to confuse people with the table of contents. When okay. you get to the, yeah, chapter I two. I see. Yeah, wide. above. You know, I just didn't notice that actually. I wonder why I didn't notice that. It's it's a little hidden. Some people will notice it, but what that is because is there is a major character in each chapter from a different country who speaks a different language, and I kind of did that on purpose. Okay. But I was deliberate about you know kind of the matrix of there's plenty of stories that you know you can use to tell about the principles that I'm talking about. But I wanted to provide something relatable to as wide a group of people as possible. So if you're into sports, got it. If you're into music, got it. If you're into yeah, history, business. if you're into business, if you want to, you know, you're at a huge corporation, if you're at a startup, if you're at an ad agency, there's stories in there that uh, that you'll be able to relate to, which may very well be the part that that gets you hooked or the part that you pay attention to first when you hear podcasts like this, for example. But that is the entry point into sort of the broader set of ideas. So that was purposeful. Even you know who goes on the the cover, right? Um, you're you have a a galley which doesn't have kind of the final thing, but you know the names of the people that I chose to ask to do endorsements um, on the the back cover of the finished book come from kind of every industry possible, and uh, you know the director of uh, the Second City Comedy School is on there next to the CEO of the Muse, which is you know the Human Resources and Hiring site is next to a neuroscientist. Is next to a you know Pulitzer Prize winning science writer, and, and then of course you have special at the bottom of the cover here, a special afterward by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. Like that was a huge get. 
Yeah, they were they were amazing and both really brilliant and sweet people and a, and a really cool example of a team, sort of a, a team that you wouldn't initially expect. But hey, if a book's called Dream Teams, you might be uh, forgiven for thinking it's a book about sports. But if at the bottom you have two of the greatest sort of business thinkers uh, that are out writing right now, then you'll say, oh, this can't be just a sports book. This has to be about something deeper than that. So all of those decisions kind of went into that. And you know, you work with a publisher and and you start to tell them these things. You know, I want to put this and this and this person on the cover. And I want the chapter titles to say this. And I want to tell a story about that and that. And they start to say, but that's not how books are done. And uh, and so then you know you have the debate and 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 I win this time, but uh, but that's all part of kind of that same idea with smart cuts of breaking things down to their fundamental problems and finding alternate, better ways to do things than have been done traditionally. Well, what does the phrase lateral thinking mean? It means approaching a problem. Well, my definition is approaching a problem from a new or different angle. And how do you train yourself to think that way? So in Smart Cuts, I talk about each of the chapters is uh, basically leads to a, a way to sort of trick yourself into doing it. So how do you think in a way that you wouldn't think of, right? This is fundamentally impossible. Um, but you can push yourself, you can trick yourself into doing it um, through, in a part, working with other people, uh, getting inspiration from other people, or in part, there's sort of a series of things I talk about. Uh, for example, questions that you can ask. What if we had to do this 10 times better? That's the the thing that a lot of technologists talk about with 10x thinking. But if you ask the question, what if I had to make a book that's 10 times a business book that's 10 times funner than your average business book? Well, that's a really hard challenge, but you can't answer that question by just doing more of the same. You can't just make it 10 times longer the traditional way. You have to fundamentally reinvent the approach that you're taking. So that question sort of kicks you out of normal mode and forces you to assess the problem from a lateral angle. You might not come up with a good answer to that, but you're now primed to come up with a different answer, which could be good. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So that example from Smart Cuts of 10x thinking and lateral thinking applies directly to dream teams. It's a really great point you make where um, often dream teams have a dissenter and it doesn't matter if the dissenter is right or wrong. Um, like so, So everybody might believe like, oh, we have to 
uh, you know, let's say it's politics example. Again, everybody might believe we have to go to war with some country for X, Y, Z reason. And then there might be a dissenter who says, no, I don't think we should. Here's why. Doesn't matter if he's right or wrong. What you showed is that having a dissenter improves the overall importance of the team because it forces everybody to think a little bit more deeply about the problem. So they've done studies with juries where they'll take the jury and the jury has all agreed, all in agreement on this is the verdict. And then they'll throw in a new person who's like, no, I disagree. And even if that person is wrong, the jury will spend more time deliberating and they'll make a more accurate assessment. Um, they, they've done a whole bunch of studies with kind of brainstorming to this effect. My favorite is, uh, is simply the example of journalism as part of, you can think of you know, the press as sort of a member of the team of uh, the government in America. We all often call it the fourth you know, kind of branch of government. That uh, you know, we set up this system of government in the United States where there's the executives, they do shit, legislatives, they make rules about shit, and then the judges that oversee and make sure that we're doing things correctly. Um, and they kind of keep each other in check. But the press, their job is to show you what you don't want to see and to show the public, to get the public angry enough to push the government to do the right things. The press's job is to expose things that are wrong inside of the government and so it's basically like this dissenter kind of system we set up, we sort of built into Team America, where if you have a team of people or you know, big team of teams, if you're running a government, and no one is kind of saying the hard thing to hear, then you kind of get stuck. It's easy to get stuck or it's easy to get corrupt. We have a team of, of people working on a, a project and, uh, and, and someone comes in and, and says, you know, I don't think so they're either going to show you what needs to be changed and you're going to have to face that hard truth or everyone's going to stop and have to argue with them and have to basically make sure that they're right about things. And, and in all of these scenarios, whether it's at the grand level sort of with the press and uh, sort of this whistleblower effect or it's inside of a jury or it's even, you know, you're coming up with ideas for a costume party. If someone comes in with a bad idea or an idea that's just really far afield, everyone kind of like turns their heads or, you know, if, if People that are collaborating are, you know, are good and uh, not super stubborn. They turn their heads and they look at the other thing. And in between where you are and where this bad thing is or this thing you don't want to see is, um, is a land of possibility that the whole group has not considered yet. So this has been shown in you know, mathematical proofs and studies from all of these kinds of things from the press to, to juries to brainstorming exercises. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's really important that you know, the people that we want as part of our quote-unquote team are not just people we like, are not just people who agree with us. And, um, and so that... It's know, almost like the, the, the role of the court jester in, in medieval times. Like, this is the one person the king can't kill because he, he, he's just going to say what's on his mind. It's interesting. I was well, surprised you didn't use that as an example in the book. Well, I, that's a, a bit of history that I'm not real familiar with. What what was the the reason for having that court jester? I actually don't know if is if it, this is true or not. It's just always in mythical stories. But uh, uh, the role of the court jester is basically to be the one person who can't be a yes man to the king. He has to be a voice of dissent. Interesting. Well, it and the, the king can't punish him for that. I I love that because if a king is smart, king's going to want to know when they're wrong. But, you know, the court jester is interesting because maybe, I don't know, I'll have to look into this, but you don't really want the people who are in the running to be king to kind of show you up. 
So maybe the court jester is not in the running to be king, and they can say the thing that you can that can then spark you thinking a little bit differently and coming out with your proclamation next week or whatever without you being worried that oh now they're gonna kind of usurp your throne. So how can how can someone make use of this in their own life? And and like thinking about it, I could think of you know some of my biggest failures is usually when I didn't listen to any dissenters at all and it didn't expand my thinking. So I just was single-minded, no, I'm right. And then I jumped off a cliff. I, I mean, I think taking the more inputs we have into our decision-making process, the better. So not being afraid to show the thing or to have the debate about the thing with as many people as possible. But I'm going to challenge you on that from an example in your book where you basically say often brainstorming is, you, you don't use the phrase, but it's a form of groupthink. It can actually lead to poor performance. So, and you give a specific example, which I thought was an interesting study. If people are told to shout loudly uh, by themselves or compared with when they shout loudly when they're within a group, even if they think they're shouting more loudly in the group, they're actually on average 74% as loud as when they were by themselves. Yeah, uh, there's tons of studies about that. They have that in the tug of war. So, so groups in general perform worse. So, so, so if I'm an individual and I want to perform better, should I be... An individual, or should I ask for a team? To the make distinction me worse? is don't don't grab a group of people to all sit in a room and you know get chummy and come up with ideas about what you could do with your project or whatever. Go one on one and have debates. So the the research, you know, there's a million brainstorming studies, but the research shows that most brainstorming groups are going to come up with fewer ideas and fewer good ideas than those same people just brainstorming alone in their bedrooms. But What's better than brainstorming alone in your bedroom is brainstorm alone in your bedroom and then come and debate what you've brainstormed. So you can then refine those ideas. What's even better than that is do all that, come and debate, and then bring in a wild card, someone who's kind of outside of your field to have them debate. Or bring in someone who's you know legit crazy or set up the debate or the session to kind of toss around these ideas with a really extreme idea that's so far out that you shouldn't do it, but is far enough out that you now have permission to discuss things that are kind of outside of what you would deem normally safe. I liked your phrase that you used earlier. You want to essentially you want you're, you're 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 by doing this, you're expanding what you call the land of possibility. So mm -hmm. this is just a technique for expanding the land of possibility for yourself. Hey, find someone different from me or has some extreme view or crazy view or I would not have expected this view and listen to him or her debate uh and that in a in a, in, in a weird way that's kind of building a team mm -hmm. and um getting that team's input and then now you've expanded your ability to you know you have a bigger land of possibility to to explore yeah and I think doing it one-on-one -on -one is especially powerful because say you're that king, right? You're the king. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want, you know, whatever, the vice king, the prince. You don't want the prince to, you know, decide that he can take over and throw you in jail. So you're working on something, whatever king problem you have, uh, go one-on-one -on -one to your advisors and get their honest input, you know, and make them feel like you're not going to chop their head off if they say something wrong. Don't have all the advisors get in a room together because they'll be too scared to say what they really think oftentimes. Mm. And in a group setting, even with groups of people who love each other, who are not going to get their heads chopped off, we have this need, this psychological subconscious need to safely kind of be accepted by the group. 
So you might have a thought pop in your head that you push away consciously or subconsciously that could be useful or maybe not, but it's it's too far outside of the boundaries of what's safe for the group that you won't express it or you won't kind of continue thinking about it in your head. You know, the groups of people shouting less loud, that one's sort of an interesting one because it's your brain. I, I don't quite know what the conclusion is, but your brain is doing this. You're not consciously doing this. Your brain is saying, I don't need to shout quite as loud because the group, it's safe not to, or the group is good or whatever. Um, but you're not going to not shout at all if, because then you won't be accepted in the group. So there's this weird thing that happens when we're all together in a group. But one-on-one, if you and I feel really safe with each other, like we have full emotional, personal support, then we can have a really intense debate and not be afraid that someone's going to catch us you know, on camera and then you know, call us something in social media and ruin our lives. We can actually go much further down the intellectual path uh, if we're in that safe sort of one-on-one environment. And um, I mean, this is related to some of your other examples, like let's say the the sports team examples that, that you use, the, like the Red Army. Um, the hockey team. Hockey team. And uh, the Wu-Tang Clan example, which is that they it's not like a team of all people with the same skills. They're, this is a team, these are teams specifically picked for differences in order to create that land of possibility. And then there's other techniques that you talk about throughout the book for coalescing that into a team, into a yep. team framework and a team mindset. So, so Riza, the, the, the guy who started the Wu-Tang Clan, kind of selected for the differences, but then used other techniques, like for instance, storytelling to kind mm-hmm. of create a vision to bring them together as a team. Even though some people were from Brooklyn, some people were from Staten Island, some people didn't trust each other. You know, they all argued. Right. They had very different rapping styles, um, but he was able to create music out of it. You mentioned they sold uh, together and, and individually. They've sold seventy-four million albums. Uh, uh, and again, it's not. It's it, it's it's this two-step approach. He, he used differences to to create. Uh, it's almost like what you were saying, one-on-one with each person because of the differences. And then maybe it's storytelling, which you mentioned as part of the oxytocin. Maybe it's intellectual humility, which we'll talk about in a second. He, he used various techniques to create them into a team. I, uh, tell me if, if you think this analogy works. This is the first time I've, you sparked this for me. You're going to make a cake. And so you have all the ingredients that you need for the cake. You're not just going to have flour, flour, and flour, right? You need eggs and sugar and milk and whatever. But you don't just mix them all together at once either, right? You don't just dump them in a, in a bin and dump the bin or the bucket into a microwave, right? The, what you do with the ingredients next, once you have them, you, you set up the ingredients that you think are going to maximize the most delicious cake, and then you go through a process of making sure that they interact in ways that, that maximize their effectiveness. There's so a little bit of that, I think, in, in what Riza did, you know, the way that he guided kind of the Wu-Tang Clan. And yeah, the overarching purpose of that group was to to make you know groundbreaking music the overarching purpose of the flour and the milk and the eggs is to make a delicious cake but it that makes it okay for them to be different and it makes it okay to not have to do it all in the sort of round table where everyone holds hands and you know makes all the decisions together there can be the leader the baker the sort of clockmaker orchestrator as part of that process i don't know if that does that analogy seem to work yeah i mean um but I think I think there's more to it with the Wu Tang Clan, which is that their differences actually created a unique style. Because you had yeah. kind of the really gruff voice of uh, old dirty bastard, you, and you had um, uh, you know everybody had kind of like their own style. So all together, 
uh, again, there was you gave uh, listeners multiple reasons to like a song. Yeah, somebody might like Method Man. Someone might like ODB. Someone like might like the combination of all the voices. Someone might like RZA's production skills. So it's like multiple reasons to to like something. And they they brought out. I mean, RZA said that it was like sharpening each other's blades, right? They brought out the best in each other, and they they forced each other to kind of get better. But there's also the contrast that's interesting. And maybe in the cake analogy, more like cookies. If you add salt to chocolate chip cookies, they taste more delicious, even though salt and chocolate oh, sound awful mm-hmm. together. Um, that that combination actually, yeah, um, that was, I think it was Mrs. Fields. I think that was her big kind of innovation. Add salt to, uh, or someone like, it, it's either her or one of those famous cookie makers. They add salt to the chocolate chip cookies and it makes them better. And you would not think that. That combination is super interesting. And part of that was at play with the Wu-Tang Clan as well. He, you know, Riza had to kind of play this negotiation game, but there was also every week or day or whatever, they showed up to the studio. It was one-on-one, bring your best material, and whoever had the best material, they get that part of the song. And so you came back with new stuff, trying different things, and and kind of pushing each other's boundaries. That was a big part of the dynamic well, there. Well, and, and their first hit song, it was basically, you know... Rizzo's production, which is basically kind of re- repetitive for each one, and you have these nine rappers or however many there were, um, basically rapping their part by themselves and then stepping back and then the next one going, and that all. And I guess they were it was somewhat competitive, kind of like you were mentioning the story of how hip hop began as being competitive against DJs. It was kind of this, you know, reminiscent of the history of the whole that whole musical genre. Uh, and that that co- competition feeling allowed them to create this, you know, huge hit song, which launched, you know, this mega this mega group. Yeah, and changed music and culture. And plus, he had the kind of business acumen to say, "Stick with me." I, you didn't mention this part as much in the book, but "Stick with me," and I'll make you all individual. You mentioned it a little bit. You stick with me, and I'll make you all individually stars with different labels. And that was another big part of his storytelling to them to yeah. keep them as a, as a team is that he was going to focus on their success too. Well, and I think there was some brilliance in there also that you know knowing that if they get really big and then they're all on the same label, the competition is going to start to, the ego will creep in. And if he forces them to be on different labels, they might not be happy about that, but you're not competing against each other with your solo stuff as much, which is actually a good way to prevent the relationship from kind of boiling over into a place that you don't want it to go. I think, I mean, I love that story so much because I think it is kind of a meta analogy for the way that kind of every great innovation kind of ever happened is by mixing different ingredients in interesting ways. And it is uh, agnostic as to whether the people got along at first or whether they even knew each other. Or whether they even remained on the team. Like think of the Wu-Tang Clan again. It's easy to conceive that at different points, different members could have just dropped out, but keeping the same basic philosophy, they could have brought someone else in and boom, that still would have been a successful rap group. By themselves, I don't think anyone would say any one of them individually was the best rapper ever. No, no way. Yeah, um, and you know, post kind of Wu Tang's heyday, uh, they all did pretty well, and some did more well than some did better than others. But yeah, if they just start, if it just started out as the RZA putting out "Protect Your Neck" by himself, no way. You're kidding. Yeah, I I think that there's something interesting there. There's there's a level of humility again that had to happen in the beginning of that 
that led to all of that so, success. So now let's talk about the intellectual humility part because I think I think this uh, is such a great story in the book and I think is the one that probably most can can most easily be applied to the individual trying to get better and build their own team and philosophy of life and, and so on. But you give the uh, one example of, of intellectual humility is Malcolm X. So Malcolm X, we kind of, if, if you only barely know who he is, you almost think of him as the violent Martin Luther King. Right. So like he came off saying, you know, just like, you know, his, he was originally a follower of Elijah Muhammad who started the Nation of Islam. And they had a kind of more violent approach to uh, civil rights and, you know, how to fight for it, literally fight for it. And Martin Luther King had more of this Gandhi approach. But then Malcolm X goes off, becomes disenchanted with Elijah. And this, I'm just retelling your story. Goes off and, go, you know, goes on a journey to, to Mecca, comes back uh, with a new philosophy that, you know, uh, not about uh, necessarily... Uh, I don't know, I'll let you describe it. He comes back basically with a more, just, it doesn't matter what we get, just respect us. And it's a story of love more than a story of hate. Right. There, There's a reason why Malcolm X went down in history as one of the great civil rights pioneers. And uh, and it's because of this story that you're telling of what happened to him. If he had died two years before, we wouldn't have that story. He was anti-civil rights movement for most of his life, um, for most of his adult life. He thought that Martin Luther King was an idiot. He, when Kennedy was assassinated, he said he had it coming. You know, he was not known for being this uh, sort of loving, kind civil rights leader that that we know him as, and that's because he had this huge transformation. So the story of Malcolm X is uh, is one of basically the question is how do you change deeply held beliefs? How do you change your mind about something that's important to you? And not only that, that you're, that you're, you know, there wasn't the notion of a personal brand then, um, and maybe there shouldn't ever be the notion of a personal <laughs> brand, but certainly Malcolm X's followers and listeners looked up to him for this violent stance. And so you have to have, so he had this investment in, in this, a per, this character he had created for himself he had this enormous investment in that. Oh, yeah. So it's not only kind of um, intellectual humility in, in changing uh, your mind, but there was great uh, risk. Ultimately, of course, he was assassinated, yeah. but there was, there was great risk to your reputation and among your followers, the, the people who were closest to you, uh, when you when you change minds like that. Well, and your life work too. Yeah. So the, the thing, key ingredient that you need in a team that is more than the sum of its parts you don't just need people who think differently, who can push each other, who can have that great friction. Um, you don't just need disparate inputs. You also need the ability to change. You, you can have the battle, you can do all that, but then if everyone goes home and, and doesn't change their mind about anything, you're not going to move further past what you would on your own. So intellectual humility is this virtue that uh, that has been studied a little bit, but over the last couple of years has been some big kind of developments in being able to actually measure it. But it's four things. It's being able to respect someone else's viewpoint. It's not being overconfident intellectually. So not being too sure that everything you know is right. It's uh, being willing to revise your viewpoint and being able to separate your ego from your intellect. If you can do those four things, uh, 
then you're kind of the ideal person to be working with, assuming that you're smart and you're bringing something to the table. Uh, if everyone in your group has the, has those things, then you can be almost unstoppable. So what the Malcolm X story is, is I think one of the greatest examples in history of someone who had every reason not to do those things, every reason not to change his right. mind, not to respect other people's viewpoints. You know, he he was the victim of systemic and personal racism his whole life. Um, his father was murdered by the KKK. His house was burned down by white supremacists. He grew up in this really hostile environment. He'd have a re- reason to, you know, to be bitter about uh, race and about racial issues in in the United States. And then he went to jail when he was pretty young. And when he was there, he had this incredible transformation that was sort of the first hint that this is a guy who can change his mind. Um, but he was still very young. He converted to this nation of Islam, this this religious group that was sort of culty at the time. It was like 400 people. He converted to that. He stopped cursing. He, you know, he started doing all of these, you know, kind of healthy things. Got out of prison and then became this preacher for this movement. And he helped turn this movement into this massive thing. And then, yeah, at the end of his life, he uh, had another huge change of heart where he decided that this movement was incorrect. He changed his religion again, and then became this great civil rights hero. Who I say that he was kind of a crucial part of the team that helped us, you know win civil rights in America, make the civil rights you know movement happen because you had this nonviolent movement with Martin Luther King and uh, you know and Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin is sort of this less known figure. He was a former communist that, that was kind of on the, the far left of this movement. but they were they were very much about this nonviolent protest, which was very novel and, and interesting and cool. But there was an element of what uh, Malcolm X preached that was actually pretty important and towards the end of Martin Luther King's life, uh, people said that he started to sound like a nonviolent Malcolm X. Malcolm X preached about self-respect, and uh, and as opposed to talking specifically about um, specific solutions like segregation and integration and all that, he, uh, he kind of he kind of made it more broad, which is that uh, respect for for African Americans would be would 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 ultimately provide the solutions. Yeah. And so uh, so a lot of Malcolm X's philosophy ended up translating into and becoming a, a part of, you know, Dr. King's philosophy and and helping the movement. And he also was this great public face that uh, that a lot of Americans, um, black and white, were very afraid of for a long time because he was this sort of violent fringe preacher. And then he had this huge transformation. He could change religion, but also, you know, he's the leader of this super violent group. Talk about a risky move. So the question I had is, how does someone do that? What what allows you to do that? And the answer is intellectual humility. And the story, the short version of the story of how he did that is when he basically went to Mecca, did a pilgrimage, met other people, put himself out of his you know homeland where all of his ego and his ideas were sort of attached to him. Right. So your your point is is that that traveling and immersing yourself in a completely foreign environment will help you with that. It'll detach your ego from your intellect. And then he went and he lived in Africa for several months. And his daughter said the more he traveled, the freer he became. And and you make the point in the book, it's not only the more countries you've been to, but the more time you spend in a specific country, like living in a country will also increase your intellectual humility. But if you don't have the money and resources or time to travel, you mentioned that reading lots of books will also do it. Watching lots of Netflix, right? Taking in stories of people 
That's why I watch binge watch Netflix every night. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Taking in stories of people who are not like you is a good way to reinforce the neural pathways in your brain that basically say there's more than one right way to do things, and that's okay. I think that's also a way to basically like people always say, uh, find what you're passionate about. And people don't have the time or the resources to try lots of things to see what they're passionate about, but they do have the time to read. And you could read a lot about different things and different people and different perspectives. And some things will catch fire inside of you and that's what you become passionate about. Yeah. And so clearly Malcolm X, through a combination of reading and traveling, mostly traveling, but but certainly a lot of reading, um, found he was more passionate about this other philosophy and how it applied to civil rights than the original philosophy he was part of. Yeah, and I mean, and that's super hard to do. And I think it says something about who he was that he was able to do that. But you know, what you're just talking about, there our, our brains are malleable. You know, we can become more intellectually humble. And there's things that we can do. They've done studies, brain scans of people who are monolingual and multilingual, and they find that multilingual people's brains actually look different. And some of the things that happen in your brain when you learn another language is your brain learns there's more than one right way to say something. And so you can hold those two things, two different ways to say something in your mind and not freak out. And this actually forms neural pathways that, or reinforces these neural pathways that transfer to other kinds of thinking. So if it's there's more than one right way to say a certain word and that's okay, your brain over time trains itself to say, well, hey, if someone has a different idea than mine, maybe mm -hmm. that's okay too. Maybe I can respect that. Maybe I don't have to agree I can respect that. And maybe if that idea is really compelling, maybe I can change my mind and not feel bad about that. Because it turns out that thank you and gracias are both okay. So why not this? So uh, that's why I think actually teaching language in elementary schools should be required if we, we want to make a small dent in you know, not hating each other and being so polarized. Well, what's another way? Because like, for instance, I'm not multilingual. Sure. And I'm never going to be. <laughs> Uh, well, so the the two that you talked about are the the ones that were the most highly correlated in the the study that I did for Dream Teams. Actually, starting to work on another study to kind of tease out more things. But living in other cultures, so the, I actually did this this year, the first three months of this year, on purpose because of this research. Because I took the test that that you'll take, and it turns out that I am uh, the nice thing about the four factor intellectual humility test. You add a, a fifth factor, which is openness to experience, and then it gives you sort of a full picture of open minded. I found out that I am less open-minded than I thought. And it's along a couple of the dimensions. I'm open to trying things. I respect people's viewpoints. It turns out I'm really bad at separating my ego from my intellect. So I could- How can you test that? So there's this assessment that you can get on my website and take, actually. What's an example question? Oh, what are the questions? They're like these, these personality assessment type of questions. Like, um, when someone tells me something I disagree with, I am likely to be- upset scale of one to five five really upset scale of one not at all and so based on what you put and most people put you know uh two but uh it turns out that basically when you pit everyone against each other everyone will will score pretty well but uh but there's sort of the threshold it's not 50 percent on these tests that makes you intellectually not humble it's like 80 percent mm. so yeah so there's those kinds of questions it's like 40 question quiz but it Fills out these five factors, intellectual humility and openness to experience. Turns out that whatever the questions are that lead to ego and intellect for me are hard, which means that if you convince me I'm wrong about something, maybe I'll swallow it, but I will feel terrible about it. Mm. And, uh, and my ego will be hurt. And I might actually try and find another way to disprove you later after I've thought about it.
It, it reminds me of marriage, by the way. So, <laughs> uh, and Jordan Peterson has this example in his book, uh, 12 Rules for Life. If if you're married, you're going to be in lots, gets in lots of arguments and bickerings with your wife over a long period of time, you know, or husband or whatever. And his point is, you know, you could the, the you're always trying to prove that you're right and the other person's wrong. But if you're right, he he says if you're right a thousand times in a row, chances are you're no longer married. <laughs> so <it's> better <laughs> yeah. to go for peace than to yeah. for right. Well, you know, if yeah, so a thing that uh, that I decided to do based on this research is the first of this year. In the cold, terrible, dreary, depressing New York winter, I went to Mexico City. And I got an Airbnb, and I stayed in a couple different neighborhoods, but I lived in Mexico City. And I met people, and I spoke only Spanish. And I have decent Spanish, but uh, they speak a lot of English there, too. Uh, But I lived in Mexico City, and I just worked at coffee shops and wrote. And because the research shows that if you live in a culture that's not your own for a couple of months, that's the threshold when you start to develop more intellectual humility. So living in Mexico City and someone else's culture, learning that I'm wrong about things and it being okay, it's reinforcing in my brain this uh, these pathways that can hopefully help me to be a little bit better at separating my ego from my intellect. Mm. So that's one. So if you have three months that you can take a sabbatical, go live somewhere else. Don't just travel the world you know, one week at a time. Um, actually, stay put. That, that turns out is quite, uh, quite correlated. If you don't have money to travel, then I would suggest taking in a more diverse array of fictional television. So don't just watch the procedural mysteries. Also watch, you know, the medical stuff and the, you know, whatever. Watch Lost. Watch Alias. Actually, Go I, watch that one. <laughs> I, I would recommend Lost. I, I was one of my all time favorite shows. But uh, and J.J. Abrams' first big hit. But um, I would also add to that: um, don't go on social media because <laughs> if you look at your Facebook feed. The way the algorithm apparently works right now is you're only going to see the people you agree with all all the time. Reinforces what you think, and that's not good for training yourself to think differently. Yeah, it seems like this. There's a there's, it, this has happened much more recently that which is that you're really not allowed to disagree with people anymore, or they will quote unquote unfriend you. Yeah, you know that's the it kind of it speaks back to what we were talking about. It's sort of depressing to me that we. We had this internet, which was the ultimate place where you could be a misfit. And now much of the internet is no longer safe to explore your ideas and to, you know, I can't talk on Twitter about something that I'm not sure about yet because I don't want to risk being having my life be over because I said something that offended someone that then got turned into this mob. It's tricky because I've definitely been subject to mobs a few times and it's very painful. It's hard to recover. Yeah, and you're more resilient, I think, than a lot of people out there who... And then then what are we left with? We're left with less dialogue, less debate, less of that cognitive friction that's going to lead us to come up with better ideas. That kind of sucks. So what's... Uh, so I feel like I feel like intellectual humility, which you talk about quite a bit in the book, is really the most important part, not only for teams, but for the individual because that could lead then yes. to... Um, understanding the concepts behind, you know, building a great team. I also want to mention having a good leader is also really important. Like, you know, some of these sports teams have a great leader, and when when the various sports stars of the team go off to other other teams, they don't have the same leader. They no longer perform well, and so the leadership is also very important. What, what do you think makes a good leader? Well, so obviously intellectual humility makes a good leader. Well, so the one of my favorite bits on that, and again, not a sports guy, but I love learning about the history of sports and learning about kind of the data behind sports because it's sort of this new territory for me as sort of a curious person, I guess. 
Um, really great book called The Captain Class by this guy named Sam Walker. Yeah, you mentioned that book in the, in the I book. I reference him. Yeah, he was the editor, sports editor for the Wall Street Journal for many years. He wrote this book about what are the greatest teams in the world, the greatest sports teams ever in history. He had all these criteria. He boiled it all down to these like 11 teams or something like that. And what he decided is that the thing that makes a difference between the teams that have all the potential and don't turn into dynasties and the teams that do boils down to certain characteristics that you can see best in the captain of the team. And one of those is that the captains that have a lot of humility that lead from the shadows rather than from the front tend to be better at making their teams great. So these team captains that are not the star themselves, but are the ones that empower the rest of the team, the ones that show that it's okay to change your mind, it's okay to do things differently, the ones that kind of take the bullets for the rest of the team. So one of my favorites is this... uh, one of Sam Walker's uh, teams is the team that I start the book Dream Teams with, which is the old Soviet Red Army hockey team that from like the late 50s to the 90s, basically, was the greatest hockey team. Huge dynasty. And there were different groups that kind of, you know, in different decades were sort of the king team um, out of the Soviet Union. But there's this one co- uh, captain that they had in the 70s and 80s um, who was, his name was Valery Vasiliev. And he did not even, he was not even a good skater. <laughs> he was he was not the best individual player. You know, he'd score, he, he'd skate, you know, he'd defend, he'd do all that. Um, but if you looked at his stats, you'd be like, no way, should this guy be the captain? It should be, you know, Fetisov, who can, you know, makes like a million points a year. Um, but this guy, when he was on the team, the team was the greatest it ever was. And when he was not there, the team did a little bit less well. And he did all of these little things to uh, to kind of enable the team to be good. Uh, and there, there's a couple that actually tie directly back to what we've specifically talked about. One is he played at the margins of the rules. So he he knew, and, and at the time this was not common, he knew that uh, it was legal to get thrown out of the game and, uh, and you know, to get the penalties or whatever on purpose. So if he did something that got him thrown out on purpose, so that got him in the penalty box on purpose, it was still legal, it was okay according to the rules. But people didn't do that at the time. So he would throw himself in front of whoever he wanted to take out, get thrown in the penalty box, and it didn't matter because he'd done some damage to the other team. He would do things like that at the margin of the rules to help his team do better. So so he would t- make this uh, valuation that if I do this, my team will have one less member for a while, but the, the positives of me doing this um, will outweigh the negative. Right, which and, is lateral it's thinking. It's legal to break the rules because there's a there's it's like a contract. There's a punishment to right. break the rules. It's part of the game. Right. And it, it reminds me actually. I just want to give us an example. Let's say you have credit card debt, and you don't want to have credit card debt anymore. Just don't pay it, because <laughs> then, <laughs> yes, there there it's 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 you you kind of you know you, the society is set up to feel like you have to pay your debt, but actually there's a contract. You'll have. Your credit score will go down. They could potentially go after you years from now, but maybe the short-term benefits is you have enough money to get your feet back on the ground, like because you maybe you just lost your job and you know you, you can pay the price, but you're that's part of the contract. Yeah, I mean, I think right. You're not going to as long as you're not doing something that is outside of the rules, right? You're playing within the rules. In that case, there's a punishment, and you accept that, right? Um, so I think playing at the margin of the rules, it's it's lateral thinking. It's figuring out what is the real goal. The goal is to win. And there's all these ways that we can do it, but everyone says, you know, you only get the penalty if you make a mistake. But the rule is not that you can't do it on purpose. So he did it on purpose. Um, he also 
he went to bat for the players with their coach. They had this, there were kind of two coaches that were instrumental in this team being great. One was this guy that made them learn like ballet and dance moves and kind of train to be the hockey ninjas. And the other was this guy that was just like this taskmaster that they all hated. He forced them to practice harder than any other coach did. And, uh, and they hated him and he was also a huge jerk. Uh, but they needed him. But they kind of also needed their captain to push back on that guy once in a while. And so that guy would get in physical fights with the coach. And both of them, the strange thing would be is they'd, they'd get in a physical fight. He choked the guy on the bus one time, you know, his own coach. And then they'd show up back to practice the next day as if nothing had happened. And they had this crazy relationship where that was part of the push and pull of, uh, of how they could get, bring the best out of the team. And the coach had to have the humility to handle that. Yeah. He, he coach saw that as a positive too, which is, you know, it takes a special relationship to be able to do that. But the greatest team captains in history, according to Sam Walker, and I think you can see this in business as well, in other areas where there's teams, they're the kind of team captains that show through demonstration that the purpose of what the team is trying to accomplish is more important than their own personal purpose, and they're willing to find alternate ways to get there. It's interesting, because so it's, uh, it reminds me of Nassim Taleb's Skin in the Game book a little mm. bit. Because you take the example of Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, he got disenchanted with because Elijah was buying mansions, buying big cars, seemed to be taking this really important historical cause and using it for personal gain mm -hmm. at some point. He, may, he might not have started that way, I don't know. Uh, and Malcolm X got disenchanted and basically put skin his own, he took risk by putting his own skin in the game in terms of advancing a, a bigger picture than his personal advancement, which was the picture of civil rights, by changing his opinion, even though it created this great risk. So, so the idea is you have, to, yeah. you have to have both risk and reward uh, in your decisions. And you know who will do anything for a team that they're on is someone who sees their leader do that. I think there's a lot of people in the civil rights movement that saw the risk that he took and the price that he paid for that, that got more on board with doing what needed to be done in order to make that movement happen. Well, you, you think of like the classical like war movie, the 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 leader of the troop will go out on the front line yeah. to, to lead his troops. Yeah. So I think you know when you ask what are the characteristics of a leader that can help make a dream team, they're the leader that will show that all these things that we're talking about. You need the differences. You need the friction. You need the humility. A leader that demonstrates that is the kind of leader that. Uh, that, that will create a team to be better than it could be. So even though this is a book about teams, I think we've talked about like, I don't know, five to 10 different things where an individual can constructively use these ideas and stories to better their life. And part of it is thinking about the people around you and how they form a team. Part of it is about how you create, expand your own uh, you know, land of possibility of ideas you could pursue and that makes you more creative, which makes you more productive and innovative and so on and, and have gr greater chances of success. So again, I think this is like like a, a, a massive, massive smart cut is, by, is, is sort of thinking in terms of dream teams and the techniques either individually or as a team to form a dream team. And uh, so that's why I like, I think it's a great uh, uh, almost sequel i know you have a, a, a another book in the middle the book about story that you wrote mm -hmm. with with your team um but this is, a, this is such a great sequel to smart cuts i really encourage people to listen to 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 read both uh one thing i was thinking of 
You should write like a new Profiles in Courage. Speaking of John F. Kennedy earlier, that's the book he won the Pulitzer Prize of. Think about like Malcolm X and and that example of intellectual humility. Uh, that's like a real profile in Courage. In fact, he, yeah. he died for it. What other examples not mentioned in this book do you think represent that level of of risk and in intellectual humility? Profiles that that profile in Courage. Yeah. Oh, it's a really good question to think about on the spot in history. I'm thinking about it's hardly any major historical figures admit that they're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we we always sort of lionize these great business leaders like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. The story that comes to mind that I heard from someone who worked for Elon Musk is actually it's it's going to sound shitty, but it's to me kind of a courageous move. Um, Elon Musk is known as you know he's the most brilliant guy ever, right? Um, he has these companies brilliant people who work for him who burn out very quickly, which you know we can talk about whether that's a good strategy or not from a team standpoint, but he's really good at convincing people to, to work with him and to, to work towards you know, getting to Mars or you know, clean energy and all these things that he's working on. And uh, my buddy said that he watched this engineer who'd been working you know, 80-hour weeks on this thing. I believe it was at SpaceX. Some component uh, that you know, he was there, it's part of the mission, building this component for the satellite, whatever it is. And, uh, and he, he said he watched Elon Musk come by the guy's desk and say, I know you've spent the last year working on this thing and thank you for your hard work, but we're not doing this anymore. I need you to work on this other thing. We're no longer doing the whatever satellite thing. And uh, he's like, I'm sorry, do this. Thank you. Um, you know, we'll talk more later. And he leaves and my buddy who grants the story, he's like, you could just see the, you know, the depression sort of settle on this guy who'd just been doing that. But uh, there's kind of two things there. You know, one is it takes a lot of guts as a boss to be able to make the kind of decision that takes all of this in investment and effort that you sunk into working on something and just say, we're not doing it anymore. We're doing this other thing. It takes a lot of courage to be the kind of leader who can say, even though we spent all this time and and you know and you've worked on this so hard, we're going in another direction. That that's pretty courageous. The other thing that I think it says about this is being able to then have that person not quit and convince them to, you know, work on that next engineering project. That's it. Sounds like uh, Elon Musk though, was in that the way you told that story. It sounds like he was pretty passionless the way he just like how did he convince the guy to stay? I'm I yeah I don't know that part of the story. Um, it, it could be sound, part of the broader narrative of SpaceX, which is that we have this this broader mission, right. and that he's part of that broader mission means Elon Musk sees sees more of it than you know more angles of it than everybody else. So he, so you have to trust him as being part of the narrative of the story that following his decisions will you know accomplish his mission. Yeah, you know, so that's that's an example. The other one that I can think of that's from Have you seen Hamilton? Musical? No, I haven't. All right. Uh, Alexander Hamilton's awesome, right? And the musical is proof of that. It's also a brilliantly written piece of art, which I think actually combines a lot of what we've been talking about. The different, you know, integrating hip hop into a story about the founding of America on Broadway. This is super, I, I think it's it's a combination of disparate elements that really worked and, and that's why it was amazing and brilliantly done. Um, but in that musical, it tells a little bit of the story um, that I think the full story is, you know, it was super worth looking into, but uh, but basically Hamilton could have been president. He was that was the track he was going on. But there were a few other guys who were kind of in the running, 
And at one point, Hamilton would be president. Um, there's a point where basically he throws his political support behind the guy he doesn't like because it's the best decision for the country. And I'm going to get it wrong. I believe it was Jefferson. He and Jefferson did not get along. They they did some great work together. Well, they were on opposite sides. Right. But I think Hamilton, and again, I didn't see the show, but I think Hamilton didn't like, um, what was it, John Adams, uh, uh, what were they called? The Sedition uh, Acts. Yeah. Right. I believe that's what it was. He also didn't like Burr. Burr never forgave him for kind of what he he did to him, but he was willing to throw his political support behind his rival so that the bad guy wouldn't win. Even though he personally, you know, hated the idea of Jefferson being president. And maybe for good reason. Well, know? Hamilton was more financially savvy. Yeah. I mean, Hamilton started the first bank in the country. And- right. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a pretty brave thing to do. Um you know, we're talking about courage and very publicly viewed courage, right? Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson owes the presidency to this guy who had the the guts to stand up for him even though he hated him. And, uh, you know, and there were ramifications around that that, uh, you know, were very impactful and very important. And, and his personal, some of what the musical also shows is that, you know, history kind of glosses over the the uglier parts, you know, Hamilton had this affair that he had that he then came clean on, uh, which he could have tried to bury or hide or kind of be shitty about and and ruin other people's lives about it. But instead, he came clean on that, and that ended up sort of sinking his political prospects in the future. After you know, mm. he could have been president after Jefferson, um, but I think he made a very brave decision there by telling the truth um, in that case, even though you know it was over for him. Um, those are, that's. that's Thinking historically and, and kind of on theme, that's a, a couple of cases where, yeah, it takes some humility to be able to do that, especially I, when I, you know how smart you are. I think um, maybe an artistic one is you look at Bob Dylan switching from uh, just kind of like, what do you call it, just regular guitar to electronic at one point. All his fans booed him the first time he huh. he played at a massive concert and took out an electric guitar and, you know, I don't. I don't know if you can call his profile of courage in the same way, but you know, he he basically lost his entire fan base at least for a small period of time. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So um, I think there's. I think there's a book there. Yeah. There's. You know. There's this big piece in the New York Times yesterday or two days ago about the intellectual dark web. I don't know if you saw this thing. No. Basically, there's. Uh, there. There are academics, intellectuals that are starting to say things that sort of go against the grain, both on the left and the right, on certain issues. And this profile was a story of these professors who had said these controversial things, um, even though it meant that they would lose their professorships at uh, at these colleges. And you know, some fairly complicated characters there. But that story itself, I think, is is worth looking up. I think there's a number of ones. Okay, oh, yeah, Jordan Peterson certainly uh, uh, went up against his whole academic establishment. Uh, was he at University of Toronto? Yeah, yeah he was at Toronto. Nice. Yeah. So I, I think that that in today's era of when we're talking about how you can be decimated by the internet, being willing to stand up, whether we agree with you or not, being willing to stand up mm. for a viewpoint that is not being given airtime that could be important for us to consider, I think that takes a lot of courage. Well, uh, maybe that'll be your next book, maybe not. Do you have a next book lined up or are you just so focused on marketing this book? Uh, you know what? I think it'll be a while before I do another book. I want to do some television stuff next. What, what kind of television stuff? 
you know, fun stuff. Like something. writing a script, like yeah. Alias. Um, I, well, I'm particularly interested in just how you know indie movies have happened, but indie television has not quite happened, except in sort of short form. And a couple of examples, like High Maintenance, being you know one where it's so cheap to create content now, video content versus you know five years ago, ten years ago. I like the idea of getting into either making something or writing something or, or backing some uh, television projects that go outside of the typical studio production system. Well, and it's so easy to do because if you can back and make something that is good, then there are so many venues now to sell it to, not just Netflix or Amazon, but there's obviously Hulu, iTunes, YouTube Red, Vimeo, all, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a ton of play. Basically, any site that has a lot of traffic could have original programming on it. Yeah. So I've been thinking. Uh, I've really been talking about this, but thinking about how do I I take what I I love and I I think I'm getting good at, which is writing, and then take the principles that I've been writing about, which is lateral thinking and teamwork. How could I apply that to a different thing than you know than books? And applying that to television sounds interesting. Maybe there's other ways to other areas where I could do that same thing. But I like the idea of sort of putting into practice uh, what I've been learning and, and sort of adventuring into, but as a creative person in a different way. So that's well, I I I love this. I can't wait to see the the first outcome of that. So Shane, once again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've really in, in, enjoyed spending time with you ever since the the first podcast we've did. We've 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 hung out several times, including playing ping pong. I've been on your great. podcast. I've hung out at Contently, uh, uh, your your company. Uh, this book is great. I highly recommend Dream Teams Working Together Without Falling Apart. Uh, not only because just the great stories, but I think there's so much in here where, and and this and actually, in our discussion, this came to light. To, to this came to light for me even more. There's so many things in here which can be used by the individual to improve themselves, and I really think it's a, a natural extension. You don't have to read Smart Cuts, but I think it's a natural extension to to that book as well, and and shows your style of thinking as you've built a great team and a great company. I mean, Contently is a big a big and unique business. So Doing well, thank you. Yeah. So. Dream Teams by Shane Snow. Thanks so much. Thanks, James.